me introduce myself. I'm uh, Jim Cunningham. I'm a senior fellow at the Council's uh, South Asia Center and the newly formed Zalme Khalizad Chair on Afghanistan. So I welcome you to the session today on the results of the uh, Pew Research Center's new U.S. Image and Balance of Power survey, which was just released yesterday. We're very uh, excited to host this event as part of our larger effort to spark a deeper conversation about America's role in the world. Today we're facing unprecedented global challenges and there's much discussion about what the appropriate American role uh, in dealing with those challenges uh, is and will be in the future. And for this reason, this past March, the Atlantic Council launched its strategy initiative as part of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security to foster a more substantive and constructive dialogue about U.S. national strategy. Uh, we at the Atlantic Council believe it's critical to consider how people view the United States, our allies, and our competitors in order to form a strategic vision going forward. That's why we're particularly interested to welcome the Pew Research Center here today to talk to you about the results of their most recent survey. <clears throat> Each year, the Pew Research Center conducts a survey on how people around the world perceive the global balance of power, and especially between the United States and China. This year's survey consists of important finding, findings about America's image and the policies and actions that shape how people around the world view us. Uh, my career, I've uh, had ex extensive service at NATO. I was ambassador to Afghanistan and Israel, ambassador to the United Nations, and consul general in Hong Kong and Macau. So I've seen firsthand around the world the impact that the United States can have and the impact that the views of others about the United States can have uh, in, in a region or in our, our ability to affect change. Our conversation this afternoon will focus heavily on how others view the United States, particularly power and leadership when positioned against other countries such as China. And this is particularly timely, as I'm sure you know, the United States and China are engaging in their annual strategic and economic dialogue at this very moment in Washington. We'll also discuss how the United States responses to global issues such as the economy, ISIS, Iran's nuclear program, and climate change are received around the world. Uh, we'll start today with a presentation by Dr. Richard White from the Pew Research Center, who will introduce key findings from the 2015 U.S. Image and Balance of Power Survey. Richard is the director of Pew's Global Attitudes Research, where he researches and writes extensively about international public opinion on a variety of topics, including America's global image and the rise of China. Then Barry Pavel, Vice President and Director of the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center on International Security, will moderate a panel discussion, which will feature Dr. Nora Bunsahel, a distinguished scholar in residence at the School of International Service at American University. She is a widely published expert on U.S. defense policy, coalition and alliance operations, and leader development. She's also just recently joined the Scowcroft Center as a non-resident senior fellow. Also joining us, we have Claire York, a visiting fellow in the Atlantic Council's Brent Scowcroft Center. She joins us from King's College in London, where she is a doctoral researcher in the Department of War Studies, completing research which focuses on the role of empathy in negotiations. And I, along with Richard, will also join in the panel discussion. Uh, everyone here should have filled out an abbreviated version of the Pew poll upon arriving, and we'll have the results from that poll ready for the panel discussion, and we'll compare uh, our results with the broader findings. 
Then after the panel discussion, we will open up the discussion to the audience. So I hope it will be a very interesting and uh, illuminating uh, couple of hours. Uh, Richard, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Ambassador, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here and to talk a little bit about our uh, new survey. Uh, I'm really happy to be here and especially happy to talk about uh, this topic, um, how does the world see the U.S.? Um, you know, of all the international uh, topics that we study at the Pew Research Center, this is probably the one that's gotten the most attention for us over time, and I think that's in part because um, it's been such an interesting story over the last decade or so, with lots of ups and downs and twists and turns, and I think with this new survey, uh, we've added some new elements to that story. So um, I'll tell you about the survey, but uh, first let me just give you a little bit of background on the methodology uh, that we used. Uh, this is a survey, and... Uh, 40 countries from all over the world that we conducted from late March to late May. Um, it's based on nationally representative samples in all of these countries. And uh, in the U.S. and a few other places in Western Europe and elsewhere, uh, we do telephone surveys, but in uh, most of the countries we actually do face-to-face -face interviews, in-person interviews in people's homes. Um, and the margin of sampling error is about 2.8 uh, to, to 4.3 percent, which is pretty standard for uh, polling methodology. So uh, that's just a quick overview of the methodology. Happy to talk more about that as well. Um, so I'll, I'll jump into the findings on uh, how the world sees the U.S. and start off with what's really our, our baseline measure of how people around the world view the U.S. It's a very simple question. Do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of the United States? And uh, if you look at this map here, it, it illustrates uh, the percentage of people essentially in each country who say they have a favorable opinion of the U.S. So uh, the dark green are places where ratings for the United States are pretty high. Uh, the lighter green uh, countries are ones where ratings for the U.S. are not so good. And then if you look over at the, the median percentages on the far right side, uh, you can see that um, the U.S., for example, gets very high ratings in Africa. Uh, across the African countries that we surveyed, a median of 79% said they had a positive view of the U.S., just 10% a negative one. And uh, this is pretty consistent with what we've seen over the years, since we started polling internationally in 2002, the U.S. tends to get very high ratings in Africa. It was really the one part of the world where you didn't see the uh, increase in anti-Americanism that you saw in, in many other parts of the world during the Bush years. Uh, and it's continued, the U.S. has continued to get very good ratings throughout the Obama era as well. Uh, if you look at Asia, Europe, Latin America, overall, uh, mostly positive ratings for the U.S. in all of those regions, although it varies a lot if you look at the map from country to country, but overall in these regions, good ratings for the U.S. The clear exception to the Middle East. You know, this is the part of the world where we really didn't see the Obama bounce after President Obama was elected. Ratings for the U.S. have been uh, overall pretty negative there for many years, continue to be so again this year. If you take Jordan, for example, uh, just 14% of Jordanians say they have a favorable view of the U.S. That's the lowest percentage on the survey. Now, uh, one thing we consistently see in our surveys is that young people tend to have a more positive opinion about the United States. So if you take China, for example, there at the, the top of the slide, 
59% of Chinese under 30 have a favorable view of the U.S., just 29% among people who are 50 or older. And we see the same pattern when we ask other questions about the U.S., uh, American popular culture, American ideas about democracy. All of these things tend to be more popular among young people in China, tend to be more popular in young people in regions throughout the globe. Now, one thing that's interesting is that we see a similar pattern when we ask about China or when we ask about other countries and other uh, international organizations. So, you know, part of what you see here on this slide, I think, is about the U.S. in particular things that uh, uh, people think about the U.S. Part of it might be of a broader pattern of young people around the world being more positive about other countries and about the rest of the world. Maybe that's something uh, we can talk more about during our discussion later. Now, I want to pick out a few countries where we've seen some interesting changes over the last year and show you um, what we found in, in, in those places uh, with some of our trend data. So uh, let's start off with Russia, where attitudes towards the U.S. have become much more negative over the last two years, reflecting the tensions between the U.S. and Russia over the Ukraine crisis. So if you go back to 2013, 51% uh, of Russians had a positive view of the U.S. down to 15 percent in this year's poll. Uh, Obama's numbers have never been great in Russia to begin with, but they've come down even more. So in this year's survey, just 11 percent of Russians say they have confidence in President Obama to do the right thing in world affairs. So on these questions, on other questions we ask about the U.S., we see lots of evidence of rising anti-Americanism in Russia. A uh, very uh, different pattern in India, uh, where we've seen some very positive changes in America's image over the last year. Um, you've seen U.S. favorability go from 55% to 70%. Percentage of Indians with confidence in President Obama has gone from 48% to 74%. Um, so very positive changes uh, in India in terms of America's image. Uh, and of course, there's been a lot of, of high-profile travel between these two countries over the last year. Uh, Modi coming here, Obama uh, back in January, I believe it was, traveling to India. And those kind of things can have an impact on public attitudes someti uh, sometimes. Uh, of all the countries we surveyed this year in terms of change from 2014 to 2015, we've probably seen the biggest improvements in America's image in India over the past year. Different pattern in Israel. 81% uh, of Israelis say they have a positive view of the U.S., similar to what we've gotten over the last few years. Uh, we've consistently gotten you know, very high ratings for the U.S. and Israel over time. Uh, but President Obama's rating has dropped off pretty steeply within the last year uh, from 71% to 49% uh, in terms of his confidence rating. It's just 40% among those who identify with the Likud party. So, you know, obviously a lot of tensions between Obama and Netanyahu over the last year over Iran negotiations. And I think you see that high-level tension being reflected in public attitudes in, in Israel. Um, so let's, let's look at a few slides on some particular American policies that we asked about. Um, one of the things we wanted to look at this year is, is how is the world reacting to the U.S. campaign against ISIS? Um, so what we find is that uh, broadly across the globe, we see a lot of support for the U.S. campaign against ISIS 
uh, in Iraq and Syria. So across the nations where we ask this question, a meeting of 62% say they support the U.S. campaign, just 24% say they oppose it. Um, and interesting to me is that uh, the highest level of support actually comes from the Middle East. Uh, you've got a meeting of 77% there. You know, we talked about Jordan a minute ago where only 14% of Jordanians have a positive view of the U.S. 77% of Jordanians support the U.S. campaign against ISIS. Um, high levels of support in Europe as well. So, you know, on the one hand, maybe it's not too surprising that, you know, the fight against this, this terrible group has a lot of public support. On the other hand, it's interesting to see a use of, of military power by the U.S. in the Middle East that gets such high levels of support in the Middle East itself and in Europe. Uh, certainly a very different story from what we saw a decade ago with the Iraq War. Uh, mostly support in other regions as well. Latin America is a, a bit of an exception. Uh, I don't know that I have a full explanation for the Latin America finding, but I think part of it is that uh, ISIS just isn't seen as as big a threat there as it is uh, in other regions. And in the U.S., uh, overwhelming bipartisan support for the campaign against ISIS. Another issue we wanted to look at um, is, is the, the post-9-11 uh, interrogations that a lot of people consider to be torture by the U.S. Of course, you had the, the Senate torture report uh, last December. And what we see is that um, around the globe, um, a fair amount of opposition to U.S. interrogations, a uh, meeting of 50% say they were not justified, uh, just 35% say they were justified. And the findings pretty consistent across regions, with Africa being one exception. And as you can see, if you look down at the bottom of the slide, the U.S. is clearly an exception. 58% uh, of Americans say they think the use of these techniques was justified. Um, and this is a question, like several on our survey, where in the U.S. we get very big uh, partisan differences between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans much more likely to say uh, these, uh, these methods were justified. Another topic we've looked at a lot over time is um, an element of American soft power, America's reputation for respecting uh, individual liberty. So we ask a question, do you think the government of the United States respects the personal freedoms of its people? And by and large, we've seen that people tend to say yes around the world, and that's what we uh, see again this year in our survey. Uh, across the countries we um, polled, a meeting of 63% say, yes, we do think the U.S. government respects the personal freedoms of its people. Um, so this is still, you know, a, a relatively strong element of American soft power. Um, and the results when we ask the same question about the government of China are very different. You know, just 34% around the globe say, we think the Chinese government respects the, the personal freedoms of its people. So you know, if you're looking at the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis China, and this is certainly something that people around the world um, you know, think about very differently when they think about the U.S. government versus the Chinese government. Um, and globally, we haven't seen a lot of change on this question in the last year, but we have seen it change uh, in, in particular countries, especially in uh, Western Europe, which you can see here on this slide. In Western Europe, we actually first asked this question back in 2008, so the last year of the Bush administration. We asked it again in 2013, uh, and we found that the, the percentage of Western Europeans who said that, you know, we think the U.S. government respects personal freedom 
rose significantly in all of these Western European countries, but that number started coming down over the last couple of years. And in fact, in, in the UK and in France and Germany, the numbers are lower today than they were uh, during the final year of the Bush administration. And there's probably a number of things driving this trend. Uh, certainly in our survey last year, we saw a lot of evidence that the NSA story, uh, the Snowden story was um, making some of these numbers go down. That's probably continued to be the case. Uh, you've also had the torture story. Um, you had a lot of stories about Ferguson and other racial tensions in the United States in recent months. So, you know, all of those things combined might be uh, driving these numbers downward, at least in Western Europe. Uh, it's certainly been a big change over the last couple of years and something that's a pretty uh, strong element of American soft power. Another topic that we've looked at increasingly over the last few years is the global balance of power and how do people see the global balance of power between the U.S. and China. And in particular, we've looked at how people see the economic balance of power. So we've asked a question uh, since 2008, who do you think is the world's leading economic power? And people can say the U.S. or China or the EU or Japan. And uh, not a whole lot of people say the EU or Japan. They tend to say it's either the U.S. or China. And what we saw around 2009, 2010, after the economic crisis really you know, kicked into gear and continued, um, was that more and more people around the world were naming China as the top economic power, fewer people saying the United States. But what's happened over the last couple of years is the, the U.S. number has started to rebound. And uh, economic power, the U.S. economic power is being seen and is being stronger in many regions of the world, particularly in Europe. So this is um, data for, for five European countries that we've surveyed each year since 2008. So it's Britain, France, Germany, Spain, and Poland. And this is the median percentage of people in those five countries who uh, say that either the U.S. is the top economic power or China is. So as you can see, the numbers for China went up pretty steeply uh, between 2009 and 2012. And then they've come down pretty steeply in the last few years. And you know now, essentially, these trend lines have closed again. And you've got about the same number in Europe saying China is the top economy as saying that the U.S. is the top economy. And uh, we've seen similar changes taking place in other parts of the world as well, um, particularly in the last year in many countries. So I think this is some evidence that as the U.S. economy does continue to recover, maybe at a slow pace, but does continue to recover, that's something that people around the world are recognizing. And at the same time, uh, you know, China's growth rate would still be the envy of most, most countries, but uh, it has slowed some. So you know, these broad economic patterns uh, are starting to register with average citizens around the world, and maybe they see the economic balance of power shifting back towards America's favor. Um, this is a, a slightly different question we ask about the balance of power between the U.S. and China. It's different in a couple of ways. One is it's more forward-looking, more about the future. And then secondly, it asks about being a superpower. So it's a little bit broader of a concept than economic power. So we ask people, do you think China eventually will or maybe already has replaced the U.S. as the world's leading superpower, or do you think this is never going to happen? And globally, the balance of opinion is that eventually China is going to supplant the U.S. and become 
the world's dominant superpower. A median of 48% across the countries we surveyed say this, just 35% say China is never going to replace the U.S. as the, as the top superpower. And um, it's a pretty consistent finding across the various regions where we do our surveys, um, a little more divided in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, and also divided in the U.S. The American public opinion is essentially split on this question of whether or not China is going to ultimately replace the U.S. and become the top superpower. Um, and then just one other sort of broad topic I wanted to touch on is that this year we decided to ask some uh, questions specific to issues in the Asia-Pacific region. And uh, in particular, we wanted to look at how are people in the region reacting to the American pivot or rebalance. Uh, and we wanted to look at both pillars of the pivot, so you know, both the economic component and the security-related component. So uh, we asked a question about TPP, which, of course, has been very much in the news here in the U.S. Uh, in, in recent days and weeks. And um, we have nine of the 12 TPP countries in our survey on both sides of the Pacific. And we generally see support for TPP. You know, uh, supporters uh, outnumber opponents in all nine of the countries where we asked this question, including the U.S., although support for it's a little more tepid uh, in the U.S. than it is in, in the other countries where we asked about it. But in general, uh, this is something that gets a favorable reaction among publics of the countries who are involved in these negotiations. Sorry to interrupt, but sure. When will this be available? Yes, yes. Uh, the, the report's available now, and happy to make the slides available as well. Thank you. Sure. Um, so in addition to, to TPP, we also want to look at the military component of, of America's rebalancing. And um, we generally see positive reactions to that as well. So we ask people, do you think uh, the U.S. committing more military resources to Asia would be a good thing? because it could help maintain peace in the region, or a bad thing because it could lead to conflict with China. And on balance, in, in the countries where we ask this question in Asia, people tend to see it as a good thing, um, especially in Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, Japan, uh, pretty solid majorities in all those countries saying this is a good thing. Americans, however, are a little more divided on this. 47% say it's a good thing. 43% uh, 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 say this is a bad thing. So um, Americans, again, a fairly lukewarm embrace of the pivot in certain ways and, and pretty divided over the military component of it. We, um, we asked Americans another question um, about their commitment to allies in Asia. If, if one of our allies, such as Japan, South Korea, or the Philippines, got into a conflict with China, do you think we should use military force to defend those countries? And a majority say yes. 56% say in such an instance the U.S. should use military force. Just 34% say the U.S. should not uh, use military force. Um, this is another area where you've got pretty big partisan divisions. I believe the percentage among Republicans is 68% is and 49% among Democrats. So in a lot of questions where we ask about the use of military force, we do see uh, gaps between Republicans and Democrats, including on this one. Now, for their part, uh, South Koreans, Filipinos, and Japanese 
think that the U.S. would use military force in that kind of a situation if their country got into a military conflict with China. You've got big majorities in all three of these countries. So uh, there seems to be, at least in South Korea, the Philippines, and Japan, a fair amount of confidence about the uh, military commitment from the United States uh, if those countries were to somehow get involved with a, a military conflict with China. And then one final slide, uh, we wanted to see uh, what the Chinese think about the rebalance or what they think more broadly about uh, American strategy vis-a-vis -vis China. So we asked them, uh, which do you think is, is closer to your view? Uh, the, the U.S. will accept China eventually as being as, as be, with China as being as powerful as the U.S., or do you think that the U.S. is trying to prevent China from becoming as powerful as the U.S.? And, you know, as you can see here, um, by a nearly two-to-one margin, uh, the Chinese say, we think the U.S. is trying to uh, keep us down. The U.S. is trying to constrain China's rise and prevent China from becoming as powerful as the United States. Um, so, you know, in, in broad terms, we see a lot of support in the region for the pivot, both economically and militarily, but it's important to keep in mind that the Chinese uh, see this from a very different perspective. Um, so I can stop there, and uh, you know, I think there's a lot more to talk about, and I think it's time for all the other panelists maybe to come up, and we'll um, have a conversation. Thanks a lot, Richard. That was really uh, a lot of food for thought, and I think we could probably have a three-hour discussion, but I know we, uh, we have about an hour left. Um, like a good former U.S. policymaker, I will now generalize uh, based on what I heard from you, and you should correct me where you think I've overgeneralized. Uh, and then I'd love to hear um, uh, our other uh, panelists' um, thoughts as well. I mean, there were a lot of things in the in the results that struck me as um, expected, uh, including the fact that the U.S. is more divided about the, the pivot than, than a lot of the foreign um, audiences. Um, so I'll try to uh, draw out some things that I thought were interesting and, and somewhat different than I, than I expected. Um, the first thing that I found noteworthy, again, again, please correct me, is that um, the U.S. sort of overall favorable rating for the United States in the world is around 70%, I think I saw. And uh, boy, in, you know, in light of the constant media drumbeat and the Washington debate and the pundits, that was a little higher than I expected at this point in, you know, in, in 2015. I thought it would be a lot more, um, a lot closer to 50%. And I also thought it was interesting that there is a higher favorable rating from younger cohorts than from older cohorts around the world of, of, uh, of the United States role. Um, and it's, I think you can't quite take it this far, but also that it's more than China. I mean, the, this, you had a 55% right. number, I think, on That's China right. yeah. uh, as a, for favorable, favorability rating. And uh, the US is still quite respected and uh, quite favorably viewed, I'd say, as a general proposition, which, which was noteworthy to me, um, again, in light of the, the culture and the debates we, we engage in here in Washington. The second thing that I took away from it is that China will dominate the future. 
and that that's causing anxiety in particular in, in Asia. Uh, and that's a, real, that's a really interesting uh, question that I think we, the, the panel will get into. Um, and that uh, another sort of related piece is that Chinese see the US as trying to prevent their rise. And I think that's a really important part. Uh, that's a really important issue for the bilateral relationship that I, I'm almost certain does not get attention in the strategic and economic dialogue in the following sense. I think that one of the biggest problems in the bilateral relationship, which is arguably the most important bilateral relationship for, the, for global affairs and global security over the next 10 to 20 years, is, to, is for leaders of both countries to try to work on that problem on both sides. And we know we're going into a general election in the United States where, uh, and the Chinese know this too, where candidates will you know, point to China in, a not, in an unfavorable in an unfavorable way, and that further compounds these problems of our domestic population seeing each country not in, a, not in a very favorable and positive light. And I think that's something that our leadership has to work on so that we can uh, maximize our prospects for continued prosperity and security, and that uh, we don't trip into uh, problems that, that are not that are not sort of uh, determined ahead of time. The last thought that I had, um, uh, and this you might need to correct me on this one, was that fewer people compared to in previous years think that the US respects the rights and freedoms of its own people. Mm -hmm. And I think in the report you talked about the, uh, the racial problems and a couple other problems as well. Is that, is that correct? Right, yes. But I'd say over the last two years, globally, we've seen the numbers come down on that question. And NSA is part of it, uh, and maybe some of these other things, including the racial problems, uh, including the, the, the torture issue, could all be playing into it. And I think that has really strategic implications, because one of the strongest um, aspects of US power, of US soft power, is its attractiveness as a model. I think it's Bignu Brzezinski in one of, his, uh, one of his books on global geostrategic questions talked about this power of attraction and how um, uh, people are, are drawn to the U.S. model, and they still are at 70%, or at least in terms of a favorable rating of the U.S. role in the world. But this is a really a, a dangerous indicator to me that we need to really start, we need to really redress that perception as much as we can. Or we will have a harder time navigating the future than we have the past. Uh, so those were my sort of key takeaways. It sounds like I got a passing grade. Yes. Thank you. Excellent. Yes. Uh, <laughs> future in polling, if you're interested. So, Excellent. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to ask you about that later. <laughs> um, and now I'd love to hear from my panelists. And I might start first with, with Claire York. Claire, what were your sort of key takeaways from this really interesting and rich presentation? Yeah, so I was asked to focus on the next generation view. And I found it a very interesting report. I'm perhaps slightly more cynical of some of the results at times. Um, and I'm also a believer that different stories, um, statistics can tell different stories and can be interpreted in different ways according to how you, you choose to read them. And so really what I wanted to reflect, because there isn't as much data on the younger generation, I'm, I know you have it, I know there's um, far more information behind the scenes, but really I wanted to raise a number of kind of observations and questions both for the panel and for the audience. And to put it in context, looking at the next generation, 
those under 30, it was 18 to 29. So those at the top end of that bracket would have been around about four, three or four when the Berlin Wall fell. They would have been about 14 um, at the time of 9-11, whereas those at the bottom end of that bracket, um, the 18-year-olds, would have been around about four or four when 9-11 um, happened. And I know from teaching undergraduate students their impressions on terrorism and that 9-11 and the shift that that signaled is, is very different to even people just a few years older um, like myself. So really that political awareness has been shaped by what happened. Um, I've got three key points. Um, I think from the next generation the perspective is encouraging. As you've already pointed out, 22 out of 39 countries, young people are significantly more favorable towards the United States. Um, I'm curious about those who maybe didn't make it into the double digits. Um, particularly I notice only Spain and Poland out of Europe um, had double digits. And so I'm therefore curious about why maybe there isn't that big difference between countries like France and Germany and their older generations. And also of those who have entered the double digits, is it because there has been significant policies on behalf of the United States to engage in a different way with those countries? And you've got a generation who therefore doesn't have that same sense of history, um, the awareness of previous experience um, with the United States that maybe those over 50 do. Um, also, I think the fact that the young are more favorable to China is very encouraging. Um, 18 nations, people under 30, are more likely to express a positive view of China than those over 50. I think particularly interesting are the relations between the US and China. In the US, 55% of those in 18 to 29 are favorable against 27% in the 15 and over. Whereas in China, views of the US, 59% of 18 to 29 um, are, view China favorably compared to 29% in the over 50 brackets, which raises a lot of questions, I think, about how we engage with China in the future, how maybe um, American-Chinese relations might go and what different um, uh, dynamic that might um, develop. Um, interesting as well about T, uh, the TPP, as you already mentioned. I wonder why this is and what that means for cooperative relations. Um, my second point, which is maybe where I become more cynical, is really, is there a favorable opinion because of US policy or in spite of US policy? <laughs> because really, for me, I feel that um, it's been quite a bruising 15 years for the United States. I mean, if you think about um, there was overwhelming support for the United States after 9-11, understandably, and then there were a number of questions raised about the way in which the war on terror was um, run, about the operations in Afghanistan, the, the successes in Iraq were questioned. Um, we had as well um, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib. Um, we had NSA, Edward Snowden, these intelligence failures, and also questions about the red lines in Syria, about whether America did enough soon enough in the Middle East, particularly um, with the rise of ISIS. Um, so really, I wonder about what shapes their perceptions. Um, and I think what's interesting to note from the statistics, which is not just from the young, but across the board, that although people view the US as overall favorable, you have in one of your tables that actually it's between very favorable and somewhat favorable. And what I find particularly interesting is that between the key allies, UK, Germany, France, Canada, it, the very favorable is not really over 15%. I think Canada and the UK are around 16%, 14%. So that means that a lot of people in these countries who are traditionally allies are actually somewhat favorable, which suggests that maybe they're more critical of certain aspects. And what's really interesting as well is the Philippines, India, Vietnam, Israel are the most favorable, and Italy as well, 26%. They're all in that kind of very favorable selection, which, I kind of, which struck me as quite interesting, um, which kind of led me to my final point, um, which is that in this, we look at perceptions of the United States very much through a military and economic lens. And I feel that 
Um, the same is true with China, how we consider their sense of power and their, their position within the world. And although I think it's clear that military strength confers power upon a, straight, a state, and it certainly gives you influence, provides you the ability to act and engage, um, it means that you're a security asset to weaker states, as we see with the results from Asia in particular, who very much look to the United States for that security assurance. Um, and it's also clear that the economic strength makes you essential either as a trading partner, as a force within the region, or as a source for aid and development. It's not enough. And I think what we don't really get that sense of is um, how much America influences these areas through soft power. I mean, particularly from a next generation perspective, how much is it that American ideals and values and the vision that you, you have as a country, which I think is incredibly resilient still, um, how much does that still resonate with people? And I'm aware that's very difficult to quantify. Um, I imagine there's a, a lot of questions you'd, had, you'd have to ask to get that result. Um, but I think it would be really interesting to explore the soft power dimensions and this idea of the resonance and resilience of American ideals particularly because after the Cold War, there have been a number of trends in terms of um, the interconnectedness. And this generation has grown up increasingly interconnected and with increasing access to um, music and film and culture and visions and, uh, and really the aspirations that are kind of uh, expressed from America that are very visible um, at very subtle levels in, in terms of soft power. And I noted as well that um, American ideals are seen and American culture scene is so important that the North Korea Strategy Center tried to use old episodes of Friends as a way to subvert the North Korean regime, which is just one kind of anecdote. Um, but the US still remains this big source of technology and innovation. It's very dynamic. Um, and I wonder, particularly for the next generation, that they'll have a lot more in common um, with others overseas who are similar to them. And they're, they're able, through the internet, through this interconnectedness, to connect with people who are like-minded um, in a way that those maybe in the 1980s, those in the 1970s couldn't. Um, and particularly now, um, I think a university graduate in Delhi would have more, more in common perhaps with a university graduate in DC who's from a similar, back, or similar background, similar experiences, than maybe someone from a different socioeconomic background in their own country. So it'd be interesting to know something as the demographics of the younger generation, kind of where they're coming from, what they represent. Um, but overall, I think it's a very interesting report that raises a lot of further questions. Mm -hmm. Excellent uh, issues that you raised, Claire. What we're going to do, I think, is go through each of the panelists. I might even ask Richard to hold for a second uh, after we hear from our other two panelists. We'll then look at some of the results of our audience polling, which is coming in real time. Thanks for your help. And then we'll go to the, I think, then I'll turn back to you, I think, to address some of the issues that were raised, and then we'll have a conversation and open it up. So I'd love to hear from uh, Nora Bensahel, the Brent Scowcroft Center's newest uh, uh, senior fellow, um, to hear her thoughts on these issues. Great. Thank you very much. Um, I'll start by saying that, you know, bearing in mind Claire's last point, which I agree with completely about the importance of soft power, I was asked to look at this from a defense and military <laughs> perspective. So I don't mean to imply that that's not important, but my task was to focus on uh, the things that she said, you know, we tend to think about the most. Um, but I fully support what you said about the broader aspects as well. Um, there were three things that I found particularly interesting from that perspective when I looked at the, at the data in the report. Um, the first, and I'll talk about each of these in turn, but the first uh, has to do with the way that there are different views between U.S. policy and what President Obama is doing, which I found fascinating. Um, second, a couple of comments on Asian views, both about China and the United States. Uh, and then a final comment on how U.S. allies see U.S. security commitments, which I think may be one of the mo most consequential for the United States in a lot of ways. So the first one on the different views of the U.S. policy, uh, 
you know, versus views of President Obama. Um, I noticed this trend when I was looking at the data on ISIS, right? Because that's I studied this. I'm really particularly interested in views on this. I was surprised that U.S. support was as high as 80%, frankly, given yeah. all the domestic debates that we have about this. Um, but I was also surprised that there was pretty high global support, and you showed the slide on that, so you've seen the, the data on that. What I noticed, though, was that there was another question about ISIS in the report, which is uh, asks respondents whether they approve or disapprove of the way in which President Obama is dealing with ISIS. That's not the broad favorability of the United States versus views of Obama. This is about ISIS and policy towards ISIS. And there's a huge gap there, a huge gap. If you look at the countries in the Middle East, and the caveat here is that the Middle East is three countries. It's Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey, which are very important, not necessarily representative of the entire Middle East, but certainly important on this issue. Um, those that approve of, the, of President Obama's handling of ISIS is 66%, but that's 12% lower than support for US military operations against ISIS. Okay? If you look at Lebanon, um, I'm sorry, if you look at Jordan, Support for President Obama is 21 points lower than support for military operations against ISIS. And in Turkey, it's 25 points lower when you look at President Obama's favorability rating. Um, you see the same thing in, in Europe. Poland is nine points lower, Germany 11, Italy 20, France and the UK each 23, and Spain 24. And that struck me as just a huge difference. Um, Richard, you may be able to shed some light on you know, why poor President Obama is, you know, likes some of the policies conducting, but not him. I don't know enough to know whether that's a broader trend on presidents. I don't know enough to know whether that's a, you know, long-term trend about President Obama himself. But that struck me as very interesting. Um, and to the extent that there's some meaning in there, it strikes me that the, the most plausible explanation for what's going on there um, is that those respondents would like to see more military action against ISIS, right? Because what the pres military operations are probably at pretty close to the lowest level you could mm -hmm. possibly be having against ISIS. A lot of talk about, you know, some in Congress and in the U.S. want the United States to be doing more. So if you're supporting military operations but you don't like the president, to me the logical inference is that you want more military operations, that you see this as more of a threat. Um, I was sharing this with a colleague who sort of joked, you know, the poll should have also had a question, you know, would you like to see your country sign up to do more in military operations against <laughs> ISIS, which of course would be a different question. Yeah. Um, but I think that that difference is very significant in how we in the United States need to understand how, you know, some of our partners in those countries that are most affected by the battle against ISIS, you know, view what we're doing. There was a similar dynamic, although not quite as clear a contrast, in the question about how President Obama is handling the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Um, and here there was a lot more disapproval among our European allies, as I expected, though to be fair, with the poll numbers show that a lot of respondents said they didn't know and that could have tipped it you know, one way or another. But the support numbers to me, I thought, were relatively low. Poland had 51% uh, uh, approval for, of how President Obama is dealing with the conflict, and that's the only NATO member that had a majority of support. Um, France, Germany, and Spain had majorities disapprove with rates that were in the high 50s, and the United Kingdom and Italy were, were pretty evenly split in thirds between approve, disapprove, and don't know. That to me is much harder to interpret because there's no clear direction that one could be going in. Um, whether you know, the, they're saying the U.S. is doing too little or whether they feel the U.S. is pushing the Europeans to do more than they want to do because the U.S. has been out front pushing the Europeans, particularly in the area of economic sanctions, but in some other areas, um, you know, to take a slightly harder line against Russia in this. Um, 
but what it does suggest, what I do take away from that, is that the publics in our NATO allies don't have much appetite for a stronger confrontation between Russia and Ukraine. I think we see that reflected in government policy, um, but I think that's a sort of interesting finding among the publics. That suggests that there may not be a whole lot more room to push you know, to the extent that the governments are responsive to their publics on this, and that they may not even support some of current US actions there as well. Second bunch of things I found interesting had to do with Asia and China and views, views of China and the United States. And I'll, I'll make two points here, the two things that struck me. The first was the question, and you showed the data on this too. Thank you for showing all the data so I don't have to dryly you know, run over the numbers here. Um, that the question about whether China already has or will replace the United States, and this is a direct quote, as the world's leading superpower. Majorities or pluralities in most countries said this, though it was more based on that China will someday, not that China already has. The report itself, the text of the report didn't highlight this, but there's another interesting trend I found in the time series and the raw data in the appendix or in the back of the report, which was really interesting to look at. In almost every country surveyed in every region, there were only a handful of exceptions. More people agreed now in 2008 than China has or will replace the United States as the major superpower, and by some very significant amounts in some countries. Um, it's not true in South America, but it holds for the countries that were polled in, in Europe, in the Middle East, in Africa, and in Asia. And it holds in the United States as well. 36% um, agreed in 2008, whereas 46% believe that today. And that's interestingly getting near the tipping point, right? Because 48% of Americans said that China never would, but if I understood your margins of error correctly, that finding is within the margin of error, which means it's basically a toss-up. We don't really know it lies somewhere right around the tipping point. Of course, this, and, and this is one of the things I, I found really interesting, is you know, what, what constitutes a superpower is in the eye of the beholder, right? And that's why I, I quoted from the question. Um, I suspect that it has many different meanings for many different people, and you know, each person brings their own frame to answering that question with whatever they define it as. So it made me wonder how the responses would differ if you asked it as two separate questions, one on economic power, and you do have some in the survey that sort of get at that, um, but one on military power. If you could define superpower more clearly to see how those views break down, I think that that you know, I, I suspect that we'd see very different results because I think people in their definition of what a superpower is probably without even knowing it weigh those two factors differently and, and also weigh in the soft power elements that you were talking about as well. There was also, I found, an interesting split, and I'm, I'm not an Asia expert, um, but there was something that I, in my notes I started just jotting down as the Asia split, that there were really, really strong differences of views within the region on some of these questions in perceptions of China and the United States in ways that I didn't necessarily expect it to break down. Right? I would have said going in that I would have expected there to be you know, major differences between countries in East Asia and Southeast Asia maybe, or between US treaty allies and non-US treaty allies in the region. And, and there was one difference between the treaty allies and non-treaty allies about whether the US military presence in Asia is a bad or a good thing. Um, Vietnam and the Philippines led the survey with 71% saying it's a good thing. And our treaty allies in Japan, Australia, and South Korea, also positive, but at levels in the 50s. So that was one place that did break down along what I thought might be expected lines. But there were three other questions that showed a different split that Australia, South Korea, and Malaysia generally, at the most broad level, clumped together as to how they saw things. And, uh, they have more positive views of China than Japan and the Philippines, excuse me, than Japan and Vietnam, while Indonesia and the Philippines sort of had mixed views depending on what the questions were. Um, you know, the question on whether China has or will replace the US as superpower, those who said yes with majorities, Australia and South Korea, plurality in Malaysia. No, China will never replace the United States. Um, 
the numbers are even larger there, Philippines, Vietnam, and Japan with 77% saying that. That to me is a very interesting divergence within the region. Second question related to this on global views of China. Favorable, Malaysia was the highest, that's, a, that's understandable given they're mostly Chinese population, but followed by Indonesia and South Korea with figures in the mid 60% and Australia and the Philippines mid to high 50s. Unfavorable rating 74% in Vietnam and 89% in Japan. Again, an unusual breakdown. Finally, third question, um, which is more important, um, being tough with China on territorial disputes or having a strong economic relationship with China. The tough on territorial disputes, Vietnam, I got that, they have a territorial dispute. South Korea, which is not a South China Sea claimant, so harder to explain in that way. Virtually even support within the margin of error in Japan, the Philippines, and Indonesia. And the only country that came down on the side of a strong economic relationship was Malaysia, again, explainable based on their population. So taken together, the, what, what this told me is this is an even more complicated Asian landscape than I had thought. And I thought it was a pretty complicated landscape to begin with. Um, what does that mean for the United States? That means an extraordinarily difficult diplomatic task in working with our allies and partners in the region um, to address regional economic, but particularly, again, from where I look at this in security challenges, because you don't have a whole lot of areas of common agreement. It's not like you have clusters of states that you know, agree on a certain set of issues and others that clearly don't, and then you, know, you can work on building you know, some bilateral relations uh, among the countries you know, that fall on one side of that. You, you we're dealing with allies and partners, all of whom have a strong connection to the United States, all of whom we would like as the United States to keep a strong connection with, and yet they're all over the place on, on what they want and how they see things. Finally, my last point, a question on how US allies perceive US security commitments. And I actually think this is a crucial question for the US defense and security community. Um, anyone who has met with senior officials of other countries behind closed doors will inevitably have been asked about questions about whether the United States is willing to lead and whether the United States is willing to stand by its security commitments. I've, I've been in meetings like this. I know, you know, it's not an uncommon experience. And the concerns that you hear very often have to do with US capabilities, that somehow sequestration is going to reduce US capabilities so we won't be able to act in the way that we have in the past. Um, some of it is what I just termed US capacity, which is that we have an absolute paralysis in Congress and other institutions where we just can't make decisions and aren't going to be willing to make risky decisions. Um, and then some questions about policy, and this goes back to your comments about red lines in Syria and Obama's a move away from that. Uh, and what some see particularly as a weak response to the Russian annexation of Crimea and its aggression in Ukraine. Um, although there is not an official US security commitment, I think, you know, to Ukraine, we weren't not you know, following up on a, you know, like a NATO Article 5 commitment, I think that that has caused a lot of questions in our allies' minds. The survey that you did only mentions one question about this, or at least the report does, um, and it was a regional question rather than a global question. Um, and I, again, I'd like to see the raw data on this. What you, you showed this as a slide, you know, what was in the report was essentially the responses from three Asian countries on that question. Again, if, you and, if your country and China got into a serious military fight, do you think the United States would or would not use military force to defend your country? Majority said yes in all three countries that were polled, South Korea with 73%, the Philippines with 60%, and Japan with 60%. Now, I could argue that those are pretty solid numbers. Those are all majorities. Um, but I don't know if you have a time series on that, but I'd love to see the time series on that uh, because I strongly suspect that those numbers used to be way higher. Um, I would like to think those numbers used to be way higher at least and are being driven lower by the concerns that I 
you know, that I mentioned before. Because frankly, Japan, with 60% confidence that we're going to come to their defense, doesn't make me sleep well at night about the health of that mm -hmm. alliance relationship. I'd love to see global numbers on this question, too. You know, I, I know the question was phrased in terms of China. Um, because as I said, it's an extremely important question. If US allies and partners lose faith that the United States will not defend them in the event of a serious conflict, if we have given them security guarantees, then the entire basis, one of the fundamental pillars of the entire international system that we've had for the past 70 years is at risk. Um, and the, the, that would have tremendous consequences for the United States, for these partners as well, but that would have a huge implications for US policy. Excellent. Boy, really interesting. And I think we definitely want to pick up that last, that last point. But first, we want to hear from uh, Ambassador Cunningham for his thoughts on these issues. Um, well, thank you. Let me be, um, step back and look at this from a, from a much greater distance. And I, I agree with, uh, with almost everything that my, my two uh, co-panelists have said. And uh, particularly the, the last point uh, is, is particularly important as we, as we look to the future. Um, but I actually think that this, from my point of view, this poll is actually good news. Because if you look at the relentless drumbeat of criticism that exists about the United States and American policy around the world and in this country and the tremendously complicated international environment that we Americans are dealing with along with partners, people who want us to take over and solve their problems for them and adversaries uh, in almost every part of the world, um, the fact that the, the consensus view revealed in this poll uh, in terms of the, pot, the, the favorable or somewhat favorable, I think somewhat favorable is good under these circumstances, um, that that equates to uh, both talking about the United States or about President Obama to basically 65 to 70% favorable and 25 to 27% uh, negative is actually uh, a pretty good sign that we are very much, in terms of how other people see us, the United States is still very much in the game as a, as a positive influence in the world. And I think that's absolutely a critical instrument for us to have uh, as, a, as a global power. A lot of the negative reaction to uh, American policy comes from disappointment about things that we do that, that are perceived as conflicting with our values, as we saw in some of the questioning that was uh, undertaken about um, torture and eavesdropping and other things that have become controversial in the past couple of years. So that, that is also uh, not just an expression of, of um, disagreement or opposition, but it's also an expression of, you know, we, th we thought that, uh, that the United States would act better than it has or than it looks like it has. <clears throat> The ISIS uh, questions, I think, are critical because they get to the nature of something that I believe is a long-term challenge to the United States and our partners, which is how are, we going to, how are we going to develop a sustainable attempt to deal with Islamic extremism and, and terrorism? Uh, and the reason I think these questions are critical now is because ISIS is the most flagrant, uh, most widely reported on expression of this conflict that's going on. So um, I think that um, uh, Nora made a, a great point when she talked about the, the, um, the question, there should be two questions. What do you think about American military engagement? But what do you think about your own country's, what do you think about your own country's engagement? And that's the question that does really need to be asked 
it's, it's a good thing to know that a majority of, uh, of our partners and others and Americans support what we're trying to do, but it's even more important to know what other countries are going to do and be willing to do in the future, because that will be a key, uh, key indicator here in this country about how long we're going to sustain, be able to sustain uh, the kind of uh, effort that we, that we need. So I, I think in, in, at the bottom, this is a, a good outcome. This poll shows good results for a world that's in crisis and, and flux um, to such an almost unprecedented degree. Uh, and it's a, it's a good indicator of the, of the role and responsibility of the United States. And there's no other country that can play the kind of global role that, that we, we, we are and can. Um, China certainly cannot, whatever its other attributes or expressions of uh, expectations for the future. And this is, a, this is a burden for Americans, and our partners should understand that, but it's also an opportunity for us and for the next administration uh, to, try to, to try to get on our effort onto a more uh, solid footing uh, in, in dealing with these issues. The other thing that I was struck by is the, is the intersection of the dynamics about the relationship with China and the expectations and observations of the people in, in the region. Um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's not worrisome to me uh, that uh, a majority of people think that at some point in the future China will supplant the United States as the leading economic power. Um, China has its own ambitions, its own programs, and it has a huge amount of problems that it has to deal with. Uh, that are going to mitigate against that in the future. But um, certainly it shows that there is a, a desire by people in the region to have both the United States and China engaged. Um, I, I would wish that uh, I have the impression from the, from the polling and the responses that there's a greater appreciation for China as an, as an economic force rather than a political or security contributor and a greater appreciation of America's role as a, as a security force, as a, as a balance against China and its, uh, and its designs in the region. That's something that we as a country should work on correcting, both vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese and vis-a-vis -vis public opinion. Uh, we are an economic force in the Pacific um, uh, and, uh, and a political force. And we should be and we will be, and we need to find a way to, to marry those those realities with, uh, with a Chinese perception that uh, the United States is hostile to its own rightful place in the world. And that's something that we've been working on for some time, but obviously we need to do a better job of that. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Ambassador. Now we're going to put up the results of the, this audience poll. And I'm going to, as soon as they're up, I'm going to go over and sort of uh, give a brief overview. And then we'll come back to Richard. And I have a big question for you. So let me go over here. Uh, five questions. First question was, um, and boy, this is a really patriotic, pro-American, optimistic crowd, I have to say, on the first, the first three answers that you guys are off the charts. Um, will uh, China ever replace uh, the United States? I think uh, far and away, and Richard can correct me, uh, this audience says, no way, 67%, whereas uh, much more towards the median in the, on the global yeah. polls. So right. this is a very pro-American crowd, as I said. The next question was, um, was the pivot to Asia basically a good thing? 
And um, this audience, by far and away, seems to say yes, uh, much more than the poll reflected, 73%. Uh, the third question was on TPP. This is apple pie. Uh, no question, 81%, um, that TPP is a good thing. The next question on ISIS, pretty, I think, within the margin of error on, um, on the, the polling. I think the global polling had 80%, and um, this audience said 75% approval of the, um, uh, the conduct of military operations against ISIS. And then the last question was um, on torture, or as we say in the business here, enhanced interrogation methods. Um, and 94% say it was not justified, which is, can't, I can't imagine a more, uh, a, a more a stronger number compared to in the poll, even, even Americans, 58% uh, said that um, interroga interrogation methods were, uh, I'm sorry, no, 37, 37% said not justified. This group says 94% uh, not justified. So a very interesting, um, I think, sort of poll of this audience. Mm -hmm. The question <laughs> I had for Richard was, um, that was really raised by, um, by Claire. Look, we're in, we're in a new era of, of, uh, of history here where the, there's an unprecedented degree of interconnectedness. And um, the question, sort of the, one of the big mega questions that, that I thought Claire sort of suggested was, how has that dynamic and what we call here at the council uh, individual empowerment, how has this global awareness changed your business here? I mean, is there a more of a move is there more commonality among views than there used to be? Or I don't know if you've thought about sort yeah. of this really new structural dynamic that's growing by the month. Right. How has that affected this? And you know, I don't know that there's something I can say that we've looked at uh, systematically. But you know, we have seen some evidence at times that, for instance, people who are more connected, uh, who have internet access, for example, tend to have more positive views about other countries or other groups of people. Uh, that would be consistent with the idea that young people tend to have more positive views about other countries or other groups of people because they're the ones who are online more often. Uh, so that, again, it's not something we've looked at systematically, but I think it's something that we want to do more of. You know, what is this, this new sort of global reality of people being more connected, having more access to more information? Uh, how does that impact their views? Does it make them more open to the rest of the world? I think maybe there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that's true, uh, but it's something we want to look at a whole lot more because it could be a really important for understanding attitudes on these kind of issues. Yeah, I see. Great. And then I don't know if you had any sort of responses to some of the major points you heard from sure. your three colleagues. Yeah, no, all uh, <laughs> great points and you know, good suggestions about other things we need to ask on our, on our surveys moving forward as well. Um, I mean, Claire, you brought up some great points about soft power, and that it is something we've looked at in some of our previous surveys. We unfortunately we can't ask about it every year just from space limitations. But you know, some of the, the exact things that you mentioned, um, you know, popular culture, American popular culture, American ideas about democracy, American style business practices, uh, American technological and scientific achievements—all of these things um, in different ways and in different parts of the world. At times, we've seen some positive responses to, and you know, in our analysis. Analysis, we know 
these have a, if, if people embrace American soft power in different ways, it does lead them to have more favorable views. So I, I concur, and that's something we want to we want to keep doing and, and coming back to. You know, uh, soon enough we'll have a new administration uh, in, in in the White House one way or another, and we'll want to go back and look at America's image with the new administration and look at elements of American soft power then as well. Um, then, Nora, you'd, you'd mentioned, I think, made some really good points about uh, views of Obama on policies versus maybe the policies themselves. And, you know, again, I don't think that's something we can say for sure we were able to separate out with our, our surveys. But it, it is possible that, for example, people want the U.S. to do more uh, against ISIS, and that could be one hypothesis that could help explain it. Um, you know, we, we also know that in some of these countries, particularly in the Middle East, President Obama is not that popular. So it may just be difficult for respondents to say, yes, I approve of the job he's doing on that issue, even if they kind of agree with part of his policies. You know, their, their views about him are pretty negative, and they may not want to say they, they approve. Um, and then there's also just the fact that on things like ISIS in Russia, um, you know, Russia is still uh, very active, flexing its muscles in Ukraine. ISIS is still controlling large amounts of territory in Iraq and Syria. So, you know, it may be hard for some people to say they approve of the job that is being done when there's mm -hmm. the, the, the side they're rooting against is still having a lot of success. So that might be part of it, too. Um, and then, Ambassador, I mean, I think you, you raised some great points about uh, the U.S. and China, uh, especially in Asia and the, the, the tension between, on the one hand, people want more U.S. Engage, engagement, they support the pivot, they want more economic involvement, maybe more security involvement from the U.S. On the other hand, they do very much recognize that China plays a crucial role in the region's economy. They, they know China's uh, important trading partner of theirs quite often, uh, and they value in different ways, we can see it in our survey, they value those economic ties with China. So there's a lot of tension, I think, in people's minds between you know, wanting greater U.S. involvement on the one hand, also knowing that China is important to their countries on the other hand, especially economically. Great. Um, I think we want to go to the audience very soon, so please let me know if um, you have questions for our panelists um, in any form or fashion. I did want to come back to Nora's point, which really struck me, too, um, of, uh, and would love to hear your views on the time series if you have it of the concern that only uh, a relatively smaller proportion of, of um, the population and some of our core Asian allies is, you know, believes in the resolve of the United States to come to their defense as per the legal treaty commitments that we have. And, and I think if you, if you do play that out, as Nora essentially suggested, you're talking about a real recipe for, I mean, I don't, I don't think chaos, global chaos is that strong a word where you already have adversaries probing and nibbling and testing uh, arguably China in the South China Sea, Russia in Europe, ISIS in the Middle East, and as of today in, in parts of Russia, where I think there was a governor, governorate declared by a, an ISIS offshoot um, in Russia. Um, but so I think the, if you then have allies really questioning and would love to hear if you have any sense of the time series sure. on that. That's a really big strategic question. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really interesting question. Unfortunately, it's the first time we've asked it, so we don't have time series on I wish we did, mm -hmm. but it'll be something we want to keep, um, keep tracking for sure. Um, the other thing I mentioned related to that is, is uh, we just released a report, uh, and some of my colleagues were the lead authors on this report, about um, uh, the Ukraine crisis, essentially, and uh, surveyed a, a number of NATO countries. And you know, we saw somewhat similar results there in terms of NATO countries saying that we do think the U.S. Uh, would uh, respond if Russia 
uh, were to get into a military conflict with a NATO ally uh, that's a neighbor of Russia. So somewhat similar responses there, uh, but a little. But we we asked the the NATO allies if they were willing to uh, commit their own resources militarily, and they were reluctant to do so quite often. So they said yes, we think the U.S. will do it, but some reluctance among the NATO allies to do it themselves. So that whole series of issues, both in Asia and in Europe, I think, is something that we want to, to dig more deeply into and ask more questions about moving forward because, like you said, a hugely important uh, sort of strategic issue. So time for questions. Uh, Michael Masatig. Is there a mic? There is a mic coming. Thanks. Well, first of all, I think you've given Joe Nye material for a whole new book. <laughs> uh, but a couple aspects of that. Is the international audience getting to be like the American audience that sees inside the Beltway nothing gets done, but outside the Beltway a lot of positive things happen? And secondly, in terms of the spread among younger people, how much of this do you tie into the fact that more and more young people all around the world at an earlier and earlier age are learning and in some cases perfecting English? Hmm. Well, that's that's a great question. Um, I, mean, I, I do think you, you you bring up the point of you know Joe Nye and, and soft power and sort of um, inside the Beltway versus outside. I mean, there there probably is something to the effect that uh, when we ask people about America, uh, sometimes the policies and, and and things like that are seen more negatively than the soft power and American culture and all these other things that they like about America. So there, there definitely can be a distinction between what America does and what America represents at times. In terms of young people, uh, I think you raise a great question of you know, English language capability being a factor. Um, what we know is that more exposure to uh, America in different ways tends to be correlated with more uh, positive attitudes about America. So people who have visited here, people who have uh, friends and, and relatives in the United States, that kind of thing, they tend to be more positive about the U.S. So, you know, familiarity, I think, does help. I don't, I don't know, you know, Claire, if you have thoughts about young people as well, but that, that's what we've tended to see in our research is that, you know, the more engaged people are uh, with the U.S., they, they tend to have a more positive attitude about the U.S. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I'd support that. I think particularly at the moment you have much more globalized education, so you get a lot more people studying abroad, whether in the U.S. or also American students going overseas. There's a lot of schemes now where people will go to China or to, to somewhere in Europe or um, even Russia, I think, on university schemes, whether it's part of a language program or a business program. And I think it does change. The more contact you have with a culture, the more you understand it and are able to understand why it is the way it is, I think the more positive you're probably likely to view it. So I think that's a really good point. Other questions? Yes, right here. If you can wait for the microphone and also identify yourself, that would be great. Um, I, earlier, you had been talking about how almost the changes like with technology are bringing closer maybe a teen in Delhi and a teen in DC than you would see within their own country. And I wanted to hear more about what you and what you thought the implications and the complications this might bring to like the way we pull for and like receive information on the wide scale, like what you were going, because you kind of mentioned it briefly and then <laughs> <Yeah>. moved on. <laughs> no, touched it and then moved on. I mean, I think, I think really um, what we've seen with the internet, and I mean, I, I grew up before the internet. I remember the dial tone from the modem. I still remember that <laughs> amazing sound. 
and my first smartphone when I was about 26. So for me, I'm still fascinated by how quickly everyone can connect and engage with others. And I think you do now get much more um, global forums. I mean, on Facebook, you like a group. You've also got people in China and Russia and India liking the same group, and you therefore get exposed to more, to more views. I think you become much more um, engaged with different news sources. And I know there was a really interesting report that Pew did on how millennials get their news in the US, which right. I thought was fascinating. Um, and I think it was just early this month. Or yeah, pretty June. recent, yeah. Um, and really what it showed is that millennials, more than the older generation, get most of the news from Facebook and Twitter, particularly Facebook, which means they're not going to the Wall Street Journal, they're not going to the New York Times, the Financial Times, they're going to normal sources of social media, which means they're getting kind of different views from people. And I don't know about you, but my friends on Facebook rarely post a news story without putting an opinion about it. So you then get much more access to two different views from people around the world. Um, and I, I don't think it's necessarily, I think there's still a huge role for national identity, for national borders. I, th I don't think it removes time and space and distance and geography. But I do think it does bring in this different dynamic that we're still trying to fathom. We still don't know what to make of it. Don't know if Just a quick point on that. I actually think that could cut the other way, mm -hmm. right? Because what you find on Facebook is, you know, your friend, you tend to affiliate with people who think like you, exactly. right? And so you're, if that's where you're getting your news, you're only seeing the views mm -hmm. of the people who you already like, who are posting, yeah. who may already, you know, so you're not getting any, you're not necessarily yeah. getting diversity. Yeah. Even if you've you got friends around the world, they may yeah. tend to be more like you. So I actually think that's potentially concerning. Yeah. Right. Another question or two? Yes, right here, second row. Thank you, Sharon Bow, that voice of a moderate. I was grateful to see the 96% about the torture. I've been talking to a lot of high-level military intelligence community people. They're very frustrated because just a few vendors created a bad stigma for America. And when you look at the American people, and a majority think torture is okay, and it was justified, why do they think that way? Is there... Like, is it because the media doesn't report it? We still have these people in, in, in Guantanamo. We need to keep the base open. We don't want to have an overreaction with a new regime in America coming in wanting to close a base that's highly needed for strategic purposes. But we need to educate the American people so they understand the issue. There was a problem. It's gone. It's over. There's no more prison. How, when you look at this data, how do you then interpret it? Do you do another poll to find out why America was so high, whereas the rest of the world, you know, is, thinks it was not justified. And this group here seems to be educated, so I'm very happy that we're all at 96%. <laughs> Thanks Thank for you. that compliment about our education. Uh, <laughs> Richard, would you think your interpretation of this is important, but we'd also like to hear from the other panels. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I think that um, we've certainly continued to see over the last decade a lot of concerns about terrorism in the United States and, uh, you know, maybe higher rates in the United States than, than elsewhere, and that, that, that's probably part of the story here. I mean, certainly if you, if you look around the world in terms of comparative perspective as well, a lot of the countries in our survey have had, you know, direct experience with governments <laughs> who themselves, you know, engaged on, on, with, in, in torture with their own people. So I think that could be part of it too when you're talking about comparative uh, perspective of the United States versus the rest mm -hmm. of the world. I can think of two possible explanations. I want to make clear that this does not mean that I endorse these views, okay? But you asked, why do people think this way? I don't have data for this, but my guesses would be that one is a policy issue, that people think that it's effective, that it actually does lead to information that the government can act on to you know, help keep the United States safe. So I would guess that that's part of why those people view it that way. Um, but second, I would also say in the wake of September 11th, um, there's probably a very emotional response as well. 
um, that people, you know, I, I don't mean in terms of revenge or anything like that. I mean in terms of the way that people as human beings feel about the threat, the way that they, you know, are concerned that it may affect their lives because 9-11 was so traumatic for so many Americans directly and indirectly. And I suspect that that unconsciously plays into things. But again, I don't have, these are hypotheses. I don't have data to back that up, but that'd be my guess. Um, question from Bilal Saab in the second row. I'm going to sound very skeptical, but I promise you it's an honest question. Uh, what is the practical significance of this poll for an actual U.S. policy maker? To what extent does this really inform U.S. public policy making? Sure. Well, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to defer to the other, you know, people who are more engaged in policy making than, 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 than I am. Uh, we just sort of report the data and, and, and let the policymakers there make their decisions. But I think it tells you a lot about the global context of, of um, in which the U.S. is operating or other countries are operating in terms of how do people view uh, American policies, how do they view American power, how do they view uh, Chinese power, um, you know, what are the things they like or dislike about the United States. And, you know, often uh, public opinion is going to set the context in which policymakers in any given country have to operate. So, you know, knowing something about that I think is, is informative about the context in which policymakers operate. Yeah, I mean, my own view, even though I'm the moderator, is, you know, is the U.S. operating at an influence surplus? Are we sort of even or is there a deficit? And I think sort of having a sense of these perceptions is very important. And they're not immutable. I mean, leaders lead and leaders can convince, leaders from a variety of countries can convince publics and move these numbers if they, cho if they so choose to do so. And they are successful in, in executing it. But I think it is the context that really influences our, our effectiveness abroad. Yeah, and that's, what, that's the point that I was trying to make, is that you should never adopt a policy because it's, it's popular. You adopt it because it's in your interest mm -hmm. to do it. But it's always easier to get something done if it's not, if it's not subject to widespread disapproval or, or obstruction or just because people don't like you, <coughs> which also happens. Um, so that's why I said I thought this was, given, given the, the range of the stuff that the United States is dealing with these days and the amount of opposition to, from one direction or another, that's why I thought this was actually a pretty, um, uh, pretty encouraging result. Uh, it's also noteworthy that the one area of the world, the two areas of the world where the ne negative reaction was strongest was Russia, which is quite understandable and the Middle East, where we have finally united Israeli and Arab public opinion. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's in, those are indicators of, of a real-world problem that we're dealing with, as well as, as well as in the questions that came up around the whole China dynamic. So that, it illustrates problems that policymakers have to deal with. Uh, right here in the second row. And then the lady right behind. Take two at, at a time. Thank you very much. Uh, Continuing with the question about policymakers, if you're a policymaker in the government of China, what is your takeaway from this report? Do you stay the course? Do you m make modifications? How, how would you be leveraging or exp exploiting the data in the report? Great. And if you could hand the microphone right behind you. You had a question, right? Yeah. So my name is Chelsea with the Heritage Foundation. Just had a question about the logistics of the survey. Um, how did you find these people? Who are they? Are they a mix of civilian? Are they a mix of military? Um, and the general education background of, of the people you actually ask the questions to. Great. So if you're a Chinese leader, what do you do about this? Or how do you take it? And, and then a methodological question. 
You're asking me who? Any, anyone who wants to play China. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in. Um, uh, yeah, if I'm, if I'm China looking at this, I probably feel pretty good about things. Um, you know, it, anybody, I mean, this is, a, you know, finding in psychology, right? People look at evidence and see what they want to see in it. But if I look at, if I'm China and I look at this and I see the disapproval of the United States over things like torture and other things like that, um, I see the world telling me that I'm likely to be, you know, I am either already am or I'm likely to be the world's biggest superpower. Mm -hmm. um, those sort of general trends, I wouldn't see anything in that survey that would keep me from pursuing my interests in the way that I currently am. Yeah, I, I agree that it's um, uh, it's an indicator that they that the that China has succeeded in, in creating a regional context as well as starting to build a global brand. And uh, a friend of mine recently, uh, we were another on another subject, but a, recent, a friend of mine recently pointed out to me his his belief that China is really the only country in the world that has a long term strategy. Uh, and that strategy is to restore itself as a major empire, as it was several hundred years ago. Um, and not a major empire, it wasn't an empire, but a major um, influence in the world and, and the world's biggest economy, uh, which it was uh, several hundred years ago. And so they have the, the wherewithal and the ability to develop and articulate and adapt a strategy without having to deal with a lot of things like a Congress, for instance. But they have their own. They have their own dynamic. They need to work out. But if I if I were uh, a Chinese leader and I was looking at that, I would say, well, you know, we're doing a pretty good job with all of the problems that we have, and they know that what their problems are better than anybody with all the problems that they have internally and externally. They're actually that this poll would indicate that they're they are creating the kind of context that they want to create, which includes the expectation about what they will be in the future. Because it's that expectation on which other countries around them will form judgments about what they're going to do and how they're going to relate to them. Which I'm going to ask you to hold on the second question, which is methodological, and you can talk afterwards. If we could bring the mic to the last questioner right over here. A uh, very quick question, please, and then we'll do a very quick answer, because I know we need to end on time. Sure. Uh, thanks for your, uh, thanks for your presentation. And my name is Hongbo, and I'm actually from China. So I would say sometimes this question might be better. So um, you know, like this year's, um, like from a younger generation, I especially feel like since uh, President Xi become the uh, chair, and uh, he actually like really start doing something. For example, we have the you know the Asia infrastructure infrastructure bank, and also uh, recently we have the contract with uh, Australia. The, you know the uh, the international trade. So I just feel like maybe right now it's kind of the time to um, to kind of solve the world issues, such as maybe uh, the issue is with uh, South Korea, the Korean Peninsula. So I just wonder um, what do you guys think about that? And if you think it's a time, uh, how should these two sets of government to do to build this uh, maybe trustworthy relationship to solve the world issues? Thank you. Timely question about the importance of the U.S.-China bilateral relationship as our leaders are meeting currently. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I think what really the results um, say, and I'm no China expert, so I won't be able to speak precisely to your to your point. Um, but I think what what it really suggests is that given the support for China within the region, and also I think among European states, I think it means that the U.S. is going to have to really rethink how it engages with China. I think the idea that military rhetoric is going to be effective, I think, is 
unlikely to, you know, I, I don't, it's not something I think is going to be effective anymore, particularly if it's going to alienate people who are also economic and military partners. Um, I think as well, looking at how you can build on those ties, and it might be that it is economic. Um, I'm still not, I think I'm with, of the Joe Nye um, camp that thinks that it's going to be a long time until China really does become a global superpower. Um, but I think there's, there's room for the US to accommodate it more and to work with it in a more effective way on these things that you talk about, on the regional conflicts. And I think what's interesting as well, Australia's perception is much stronger of China than some of the others. Um, you know, in Australia, given its relationships with Europe and with the United States, I think that's really telling that it's looking increasingly economically and militarily um, to China. Yeah, very interesting. I'm afraid we're out of time. I'm going to do a quick lightning round. Uh, Ambassador Cunningham said this is overall good news. I'd love to hear from our other panelists. Good news or not good news good overall? Good news overall. Nora? Good but concerning. <laughs> and Richard? Uh, a lot of good things for the U.S. to draw on, I'd say. So. Excellent. Well, thank, please join me in thanking our excellent panelists.